You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Okay, so again, we're in Revelation 13. If you were with us last week, I prefaced my study by saying, obviously, it's a difficult study to do when you're studying Revelation 13. Its topic is the beast, number one, the Antichrist, and the beast, number two, who we'll be looking at this morning. So spending an extended period of study on those two particular characters is quite unsettling. I'll be frank with you, it is. But it's also quite illuminating in many ways, and hopefully I can share and that can come across with us this morning. But we are in the second half of Revelation 13. So do you remember in verses 1 to 10, we saw this beast that emerged from the sea. And we talked about this beast being, from the prophecies of Daniel, this coming world ruler. He was a counterfeit. He will be a counterfeit messiah. Basically, someone, he is Satan's man on the earth, basically, to be the Messiah. And the whole concept of Revelation 13 is this imitation that we're seeing of Satan trying to imitate everything that Christ did. We will see that again as we go through this chapter. Last week, remember, we looked at the beast. We went through this unusual text that said that the beast was killed and rose to life again. And I made the point, obviously, this is his master imitation. If you think about the real Messiah, Jesus Christ, he was an itinerant rabbi known really only in Israel until after his death and resurrection, whereby he was known and worshipped throughout the entire globe. And this is, I believe, what Satan is trying to accomplish with this act with his man here at this final period of history. We do learn, though, that worshipping this coming world ruler is, in fact, the worship of the dragon. He is the one who gives him his power. Satan is very close to fulfilling his ultimate dream in this period of history, which is obviously to be worshipped as God. He is trying to set up that sort of a kingdom for himself, to be like the Most High. And that is where we left it. And we're going to pick it up now in verse 11, the final portion of this chapter. So let's read verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. So we see here another beast, and the word in Greek means another of the same kind. It's making the point it's not identical to the first beast. It is different, but it is very similar in nature and character, i.e. it's evil at this point. We could put it like that. That is the idea here. He comes out of the earth. And you remember last time I said coming out of the sea in the prophecies of Daniel spoke of coming out of the Gentile nations. Because of the contrast here, many people believe that coming out of the earth is indicating he will come from the Jewish nation. And the idea where they get that from is that the word translated earth in Greek is also the word that they use to translate land, specifically the land of Israel. It's the same word. Some people make that connection. I won't argue it too strongly, just let you know that it is, it is a view, it is a perspective that is out there. The point that really jumps out at me in this passage, he had two horns like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon. That's a very interesting description because we're in Revelation, we've seen the theme of the lamb come up a lot, haven't we? Particularly the picture of the lamb at the center of the throne, we've seen this. The lion of the tribe of Judah is also what we've seen, but now we have one who is like a lamb and he speaks as a dragon. For me, that says that his appearance is nothing to be scared of in that respect. His appearance is quite normal, you would say. In fact, he's quite attractive. People gather themselves around lambs. But underneath that, he speaks as a dragon. 
He doesn't look like an evil despot. He probably is not a, an obviously satanic worshipping figure. He is probably a very appealing person. And as we're going to see in this chapter, he has a wonderful spiritual message for everyone. And what his real role is, is he is offering the system of the, the beast, the first beast's government, to the world. And he is probably doing it by presenting it as the answer to many of the world's problems, the problems that most people like to talk about. Now, it's very easy, isn't it, to find appeals like this welcome. I mean, who doesn't want to solve some of these big problems in the world? It's, you could see why that message is appealing. But remember, whenever you see this, think of one thing. We know with spiritual eyes that sin and rebellion are the ultimate problems in the world. And whenever you see solutions being proposed that do not address those issues, be careful, deception is probably usually at foot somewhere along the line, particularly if it's coming from a religious context. Matthew 7.15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. We get that same Im imagery here. A false prophet appearing as a sheep, just like everyone else, but inwardly he is a wolf. This is what we see here. Externally appearing as a lamb, inwardly speaking the words of the dragon. The Apostle Paul warned us in 2 Corinthians, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, and therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Now, speaking to a different age, but I think the principle still applies. We must not underestimate how good Satan is at deceiving. He knows what people want in this world and he can offer them that. He tried this with Jesus, like we mentioned last week, if you remember. Took him out to the desert when he was hungry, offered him food, showed him the kingdoms of the world, offered him the kingdoms of the world. This is what Satan does. Verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. He makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal, fatal wound was healed. Fatal wound we talked about last week. This shows us, I believe, the religious element of the beast. This is his job description, if you will. We see his purpose in this verse. His role is to make the earth, earth worship the first beast. That's quite a job description. That is his role. And we're actually given his title later on in the book of Revelation. I'll jump ahead and read it to you. Revelation 19, verse 20. It says, And the beast was seized. That was the first beast we read. And with him the false prophet who performed signs and wonders in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire. This is the second beast. He's called the false prophet. This is the one we're studying now. This is the beast that comes out of the earth, the second beast. And it gives us, this name, I believe, gives us an indication of how he will cause everyone to worship the beast. He, he is a religious figure. This is a person who is using religion in order to combine religion and government to worship the beast. He makes the earth worship the beast, it says. And the word make there can also have quite a strong connotation of coercion. He will make you worship the beast, either through deception or force. That seems to be the idea that is being presented here. He makes the earth worship the beast. This is his purpose. This is his sole purpose, to direct worship towards the first beast, the Antichrist, as he's popularly known, this coming world leader. And that's very interesting. He doesn't direct worship towards himself. 
He directs worship towards the beast. Now see here, this is how these first two beasts, we've seen the first beast, he arose. We talked about his global control, political government. And now we're seeing a second beast arise who is working for the first beast in order to expand and direct worship to him. And he does that through religious devotion. And it's a very fine line, political government and religious devotion sometimes. When, whenever you see these two things mixed throughout history in our day, it doesn't seem to go well. And quite often, political government ends up being worship. The two things blend into be one and the same. I'll show you some examples of that later. The alliance of religion and state has a pretty sordid history, a history of turning to suppression and despotism fairly quickly. Almost every example, in fact, through history ends up like that. We could go all the way back. Deified leaders, political leaders deifying themselves, having a priesthood to control the masses to make sure that they are deified. This go back to the, the pharaohs in Egypt. They were all associated with the pantheon of Egyptian gods, many of them entering that pantheon. The Hebrews would have encountered this when they were in Israel. Think of, we've talked about him before at the time of Hanukkah, the Greek, uh, the Seleucid ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, whose name means God manifest, who put a statue in the temple, demanded the same sort of things that we're seeing now. In the first century, they had what they called the Roman emperor cults. This is where the Roman emperors decided that they wanted to be worshipped and they deified themselves. And then by power of the state, they forced anyone who wanted to be involved in different trades and professions had to give allegiance to the emperor as God. You see how these things work. I think all of these things are prefigures, foreshadows of what we will see in this final period of history. And it helps us understand the book of Revelation because often we can come to the book of Revelation and think it just re it's so out there. What are we re even reading here? It's very hard to understand. And a lot of people do come to it with that understanding. But when you trace it through history, you see that these things already have a pattern on this earth. It's much more understandable. There's many more of these. Some of the Japanese and Chinese emperors were associated with as gatekeepers of heaven. Much further back in their history, we see that. The Dalai Lama, Tibetan Buddhism, their reincarnations of various different godly figures in certain views. On and on it goes. It's really actually, in fact, the devil's oldest playbook, you could say. And why? Simply because he's trying to do this thing where he wants worship to be directed away from God and towards him, his minions, or himself. And what we're reading about in Revelation is the most closest he's ever come to achieving that. But these are prefigures. And we often see that this is mixed with government. All of these things I've just mentioned to you actually were mixed with government. We live in an era because of things like the Reformation and the Great Awakening, where state and church have always been kept separate, not so much in this country, but that's generally the, the feeling that is around. That is a unique blip in history. Generally, religion and government have always been combined in history for power. Most of our Western world was ruled by the Pope for most of his history, when the Catholic Church, wonderful example of state and religion mixing together. The Pope was, in fact, the most powerful man on earth at many points. Kings of the world would need to seek the Pope's permission to do many, many things, go to war, divorce their wives, take new anything. They had to get approval from the Pope. He was that powerful. And obviously the Roman Catholic Church today, then they have these doctrines where the Pope speaks, it has the authority of God, anything he says is the same as the Gospels. That is, the, that is what we have. This is the same sort of thing, I believe. And even if you're talking about it in a non-religious context, for me, it still ends up being religion. Let me show you what I mean. Take a totalitarianist 
secular atheistic regime like North Korea. Now, they don't have a God figure like Zeus or anyone that they would point to, but the cult ends up still becoming very religious. In fact, they usually do exactly what the Antichrist will do, and they put themselves up as the deity figure. Now, what do we have here? Look at these two massive bronze statues of the king, the, the, the North Korean leaders' families. I forget which ones they are. And you can see people bowing down to them there. Now, that may be forced, that may be coercion. What have we just read? The false prophet will make everyone worship the beast. And in a minute, we're going to see a statue. This is not something that's hard to really imagine in this world. It is something that we already see taking place in many parts of the world today. Bronze statues for deified leaders who put themselves in the position of God is, in fact, like I say, one of the devil's oldest tricks. It's been around for a long time. In this period of history and revelation, he's going to have more power and authority to do what he wants to do. One of the reasons is, like we spoke about in the early studies, the restrainer is gone. He's got his final three and a half years now to try and replicate the ministry of Jesus. That is what he is doing, setting all of these things up. It is no coincidence. Now, it's also no coincidence, as you look back over all of these regimes that I've just looked at, they're not known for their human rights, are they? They're not known for their concern for people, for the teaching of that people are made in the image of God. Again, these things go together. It gives you a glimpse into some of the things we've been reading about in the book of Revelation of what this period of history will be like. But notice also, with this second beast, this false prophet, we have our unholy trinity complete. We talked about this last week. Remember, the dragon imitating God the Father, the Antichrist imitating God the Son, and now we have the false prophet imitating God the Holy Spirit. It says that he wields, think, look at the parallels here. It says in the text, he wields or exercises all the authority of the first beast. That's a very similar way of saying, obviously, that the Holy Spirit is divine and the Son is also divine. He retains no glory for himself. He does not direct worship towards himself. His purpose is to direct worship towards the beast. That is exactly what the Holy Spirit's role is to do. John 16 but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, this is Jesus speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said, he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. That is how the true trinity operates. What we see here now is Satan's counterfeit trinity, and he has his man, the false prophet, whose sole purpose is to imitate the Holy Spirit, not to direct worship towards himself, but to make sure that people are directing worship towards God. And you can see now with this, he's got his, trin his unholy trinity counterfeit on this earth operating. Let's read on. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth and in the presence of men. Just like the Holy Spirit, he performs signs. Just as the Holy Spirit was attended by visible cloves of fire on the day of Pentecost, this prophet seems to be able to have very similar types of powers. Just as we saw the two witnesses in Revelation 11 pulling down fire from heaven, we see them doing this here. Just as the false son has his fake death and resurrection, now we see a false signs and wonders ministry from this religious figure called the false prophet. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come 
to life. You notice how many times it's mentioned in this chapter that the beast had the wound of the sword and come to life. Like it's a big issue, like it obviously changed the game at this point. And I believe it's this, it was that death and resurrection appearance that allowed him to then actually say, I'm God, worship me. And then everyone started worshipping in that way. Before that, he was probably just a, a political leader of that sense. And then it suddenly changed. And now he deifies himself and he wants everyone worshipping. It's a very big thing. But we do see here this beast, this false beast, false prophet, he has the power to perform miraculous signs. Now, we could argue whether these are completely counterfeit signs or whether they are a powerful miracle. The text does seem to imply that he does have the power to do miraculous signs. But they are, the point is, even if the signs are real, what they are pointing to is counterfeit. That's the whole point. Understand it all in the context of the counterfeit trinity. And it says, people will be deceived. All those who dwell on the earth. It's a big statement. This, but this is the period of history that we're in. All those who dwell on the earth. So they come to the conclusion. The false prophet is saying that the beast is God. We need to worship him to prove his message. He is doing signs. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, this is the same way that Jesus would confirm his identity to his people at that time. His sign miracles were specifically done to fulfill the word of God, to confirm to the people that he was God. Again, Satan is just trying to counterfeit that here. And the false prophet is the one he's using to do that at this time, trying to get people through these signs to worship him. And for all intensive purposes, he is succeeding at this period with the majority of people. They will be deceived. And they're amazed. Remember last week we said they wondered after the beast. They were amazed at him. Like it was that sort of amazement that we have here. And now they've got this person working for him who's giving all glory to him and doing these signs. You can imagine how easily the world will be swept up in this. And we know that Satan does have power. He's a powerful spiritual being to do things like this. Think of back in the Exodus when the pharaohs of Egypt replicated Aaron's miracles, to a point anyway, in the, with the plagues of Egypt. Let me read to you Deuteronomy 13. Because God in this text assumes that there will be false prophets who exist and he tells people to judge their message in accordance with the word of God. That is really how you understand. That is your safeguard against these things. Let me read it to you. Deuteronomy 13 verses 1 to 4. He warns his people Israel. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, whom you have not known. Let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God, fear him. You shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. Uh, is this not the ultimate example of that warning, trying to get people to worship the Antichrist through the signs and wonders? that he is doing, and it says all will be deceived by him, all those who dwell on the earth. So those who dwell on the earth at this point are those who have rejected, really, the message of the gospel, as we'll see. And we're going to talk about the mark of the beast in a minute. I know everyone's waiting for me to talk about the mark of the beast, but hopefully we'll bring a bit of clarity to what that is. We also know, Second Thessalonians, we looked at it last week, that Paul said the Antichrist will come with all power, signs, and lying wonders, strong term lying wonders. John also tells us that the spirit of Antichrist is even ar around in the world today, beginning to prefigure these things for us. 
Jesus warned, Matthew 24, false Christ, false prophets will arise. They will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Matthew 7, shocking statement here. He even says that many of these things may be done in my name. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The point I'm getting at here is that there is a way that these things, there does seem to be a counterfeit signs and wonders movement that is a possibility. And given such warnings like this and in Revelation as we see when they come to their fruition, I'm always shocked that so many Christians put such stock in signs and wonders. Now I understand obviously miracles are miraculous and that is to cause amazement when they're clearly giving glory to the Lord. But we need to be aware the warnings are plentiful in the Bible that these things are counterfeit. They can be counterfeited. Therefore, if you grew up in the, in the UK in the sort of late 80s through the 90s Christianity, most of that was focused on what they called the signs and wonders movement. People had things like power evangelism, which was all about getting signs and wonders to bring people. It was just common. That was what everyone thought Christianity was involved with, the signs and wonders movement. You would go and catch the blessing. You'd bring it then. You'd get on a plane and you'd take it somewhere else. And it would come with signs and wonders. And this is how it, this is how it was. This was so much of Christianity. And that should just have you know, warning lights flashing all over when you see things going on like that. The whole point, obviously, is to try and deceive, I believe, because it takes away one of the things I always notice about these movements and the people who follow them and get sucked into them. The more they sought the signs, the less they sought the word of God. It just always seems to be that way. I don't think I found one example, really, where that isn't the case. And that alone should tell you something, because what did we just read it from Deuteronomy? What did the Lord say? How do you understand these things? They're a test. If you search the word of God and cling to the Lord and his commandments, that's the way you, you stay away from false prophets. But often it's easier to chase the miraculous because of it just is. That seems to be the way that we, we do it in this world. So that's just a warning about that. But in this context, <laughs> we see that the beast has the power to do signs and wonders and people do follow him. But we know we follow the Lord our God, we fear him and we keep his commandments. We're also commanded to test all things in the scriptures. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Again, Jesus, the apostle, everyone warns of this. Like, it's a serious thing. Everyone in, in the Bible warns of it. It's all over the place. And what does he mean? How do we test? We read it in Deuteronomy. You test by, not by your experience. Sometimes experience can be very deceiving. Sometimes we can experience things that we can't necessarily understand. But we test it by the word of God. This is what we do. We test it by the word of God and we make our best investigation into what it is through the eyes of the word of God. But here we see the false prophet. He's able to make the world worship the beast through his signs. And then we see him encouraging them to do something else. He's telling those who dwell on the earth, back in the text now, to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. So now he's not just saying worship him. They want, he wants them to make an image. Now I believe, why do we do this? The beast is very obviously claiming to be God, but of course he is not, he's a counterfeit. So he suffers from a problem. Whereas God is omnipresent, 
He can be everywhere at once and do this. Satan does not have that power or privilege. And therefore, when he enters the temple, proclaims himself to be God, he can't stay there. He's also a political leader of a government at this time. He needs to go and attend to business. So the idea is you then set up your image, just a little bit like we saw in the North Korean photos there. You have things, a place where people can focus their worship and adoration on you because you can't be anywhere present at once. The very concept, in fact, proves what Satan doesn't want everyone to know, that he's not God, <laughs> because God would never need to do that, you see. That's the whole, the whole point going on here, but it shows his limitations. But that is what he does. But he does do it very well, as we see in this text coming up. He has people build an image to him, uh, the word is actually the same word as icon in the Greek, icons, and it's again a controversial thing in the church. Many people use icons to worship. I, I don't believe that's biblical in the slightest, but this is the idea that we have here. He will have an icon, an image in his place to worship, and this is actually what Jesus warned about. That famous text where he talks about the abomination of desolation being in the temple, that is actually referring to an image in the temple. Most likely this is what he's referring to, this image that is set up here at the behest of the false prophet. Verse 15, and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. The image is then given life by the false prophet. Now, very hard to actually speculate on what this actually means. Many people go off into, you know, this is some biotechnological statue. That, again, all speculation. What I really see going on here is that Satan has the authority in these final three and a half years. And under God's direction, obviously, he doesn't really realize he's fulfilling God's written word at this point. But he does seem that he is allowed in some way to, to do a sign or a miracle that produces some sort of life effect in this image. Many people speculate maybe it's demonic, maybe it's something else that we don't know. All we can do is speculate. But the way I understand it is this is still just confirmation of his unholy trinity. Because we read in the Bibles that it's the Holy Spirit that quickens and brings life. We have this person, the false prophet, now imitating that role. And we see him bringing life to this image that is set up. It's the same thing going on here. It's almost as if God is allowing them to have this power, this power of bringing life, because they think that that would somehow make them more like God, but God doesn't mind because he knows it's much more than just raw power that makes God who he is. And Satan doesn't have any of the other characters or attributes of God. So he's almost willing to allow them to have this little bit of power in, in a way just to show them it's not just about power. It's not just about being given life. There's much more to it than that, but Satan does not understand this. Now imagine though, for a moment, the power that such a miracle will have over humanity. Humanity is so deeply deceived at this point, as the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians, it's a strong delusion. And those who have rejected the love of the truth so as to be saved will be deceived by this. That is it. They will be deceived. Now this, why, when you understand it like this, remember a few verses up last week we looked at it, the warning of a few verses up. This is so serious. The world will be deceived that he says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. And he said that right after he talked about the Lamb's Book of Life. And it's a reminder again, the only way really, I would say, not to be deceived at this time is to have your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And that applies equally to our day, I would say, too now. But in this era, it will be particular. You either, as we're going to see in a minute, you worship the beast 
or your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. They are the only two options available for you at this time. So that, that's back in the text, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image to be killed. That is your option at this time. It's this final sign. Those who do not accept it and worship the image are killed. Now, we've seen this before. Again, this is not new. Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar? We read about it in Daniel chapter 3. What did he do? Set up a massive statue, didn't he, of himself? Played the music, bow down to me. If you don't bow down, you get thrown in the furnace. We saw three people who, who remember the story of Daniel and his friends. It's the same thing, pattern prefigured for us in the Bible. Satan doing those things, the behind the scenes, the unseen war, but now obviously the unseen war is broken forth onto the earth in all its fullness in this final period, and we see it in the physical. But at this point, there is a mark that is given. As many of you think. Verse 16. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their forehead, on their right arm, right hand, sorry, or their forehead. You see, at this point, there is a clear need to identify who is for him and who is against him. This is the whole point of the mark. Now, I know everyone likes to speak about the mark of the beast. In fact, 90% of what you read about the mark of the beast is nonsense. Please ignore it. We have to understand this theologically, what the point is getting across here. The idea of the mark of the beast is that you have pledged your loyalty to the beast. You are worshipping the beast at this point. You are in wonder and awe and amazement. You have believed the strong delusion that has come across the earth. You have rejected the truth so that you cannot be saved. When you take the mark of the beast, you cannot be saved from this point on. We have to understand what is going on here. There's a lot to it, actually, with the mark of the beast. This is its very infamous. Everyone knows about the mark of the beast. Let's understand it as best we can. It says the small, the great, the rich, the poor. So all classes of people. There's no buying your way out of this one. Doesn't matter how rich you are. There's no way to fiddle the system on this one. Everyone. You either die or you take the mark of the beast. That is really your options at this point. Of course, those with the lamb in the Lamb's Book of Life, there are those who will be running. I don't, you can imagine in real time how this would work. It's going to be chaos. But what's going on here? Remember, all of this is in the context of a counterfeit trinity. Seeking to establish a counterfeit kingdom. Satan's kingdom. He wants his kingdom. He wants to be the ruler. That's what he's trying to do here. He only wants those in his kingdom who worship him. Yes? Which is just like how the kingdom of God is. You only have people in the kingdom who worship you. That's what he's going on about here. In many ways, what he's doing here with the mark of the beast is a counterfeit sheep and goats judgment. He's separating those who are his and those who are not his. That's, this is how he's doing it with the mark of the beast. Now, many speculate this is some sort of a microchip that goes under the skin. You've probably all seen these videos. Pure speculation. You can't get that from the text. Now, certainly those technologies exist. And we, we see, even today, we see some of those sorts of things being used in pretty evil ways to keep control of a population. There may be something like that. If that sort of technology is still around at this time, you don't know. The earth is seriously depleted of its resources at this time. But it's the focus on the mark again. It's more about what it represents. And again, I'm going to say we understand this in the idea of a counterfeit imitation. It's a mark showing one, one's relationship to the beast. It shows your loyalty to the beast and to his government. From the human perspective, it will work very much like a political colour. Around election time, if I, if I had a red flag or a blue flag, 
we'd all know what that means, doesn't it? It's an identification with the political party. This is the same sort of thing that is going on here to show your loyalty. Obviously, it's much more than that example, but that is kind of the idea. It shows that you've accept accepted the divine claims of the beast and you're giving yourself to him. This is the point. Understand it. Think about salvation. This is almost like a false salvation experience. When you invite the Lord into your life, when you confess your sins, repent and forgive you, you the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Yes, that's the salvation experience. Here, you almost have the, the reverse going on. When you accept the claims of the beast, you give yourself to him. Here, you receive the seal of the mark on your forehead. It's your identification with him. That is what is going on here at this point. It's a counterfeit sealing of the spirit. And from the spiritual side, it's a claim of ownership. Just as those who are sealed with the spirit are Christ's, they belong to him. The term is bond servants. We're all bond servants of Christ. Those who are marked by the beast now belong to him. And they cannot be saved anymore, the scriptures say. They are sealed into his kingdom at this point. This is the concept of the mark of the beast, basically what we see going on here. And this is why I don't believe it's right that many Christians today are fearful about being tricked into receiving the mark of the beast, like it's somehow going to be snuck upon you or, or put in a vaccine and, and put into your arm and you're not going to know it. You spend your whole life following the Lord and all of a sudden you were tricked into the mark of the beast. No, that's chronologically wrong, firstly, because we're dealing with the point after the tribulation when the beast has already put himself in the temple of God and he knows things are very clear at this point. There are two options. You worship and take the mark or you die. That, that seems to be it. And obviously that's playing out on the world at this point. So I don't think that's something for us to worry about today. Yet at the same time, we need to be able to see how often these things are prefigured in the way the world is going as we move away further and further from his word. No, the mark of the beast signifies that those people have given themselves to the worship of the beast. And at this stage in history, that's really the only two choices we have. He says, look at the text again, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Now, this is a very common place to display marks of allegiance. I'll give you a few examples. This is Hamas. They do this all the time. That on their forehead is the flag of Hamas, always on their forehead. And it, this is a good example of political and religious things being combined. The political flag there of Hamas, and they have a version that goes on their forehead. And on that forehead, they have the Shahada, which is the Islamic confession of God. In many ways, it is an antichrist confession because it denies that Jesus Christ is God. You see, so this is an almost perfect example of how Satan can do these sorts of things. We also, we talked about this man a few times over this study. If you notice, he has a hat, as many armies across the world always do. Where do they always put their identifying marks, their rank or their, their badges? Usually, it's on their hat. You can see the swastika and also on the arm. The word for hand can also include the whole arm in certain contexts, so you can't rule that out. This is the same sort of thing that we have going on here. I'm just showing you these examples. They're not what we're reading about in Revelation, but they give you a very good example of how right Revelation is when it talks about these things. There's good precedent for all of these in the world. But, again, there's more theology going on behind this. The forehead in the Bible is often associated with identity. That's why I say the mark of the beast is about who you are identifying with. God set this principle right back in the book of Exodus. Exodus 28, verse 36, You shall make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it like the engravings of a seal, a mark, holy to the Lord. 
You shall fasten it on a blue cord. It shall be on the turban, and it shall be at the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. Now, I highlight this because I just showed you Hitler in a hat and said that qualifies as being on his forehead. I get that from this text here. It says it was on his turban, which was on his forehead, and it still says that was on his forehead. The two things work like that. So this is why army hats and all these things, they all qualify as having a mark on the forehead. So it could be any number of things like this. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall take away the iniquity of the holy things which the sons of Israel consecrate with regard to the holy gifts. It shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. This was the high priest. It identifies him as one who was set apart for the purpose and use of the one whose name is on his forehead. That's the point. You see what's going on here with Satan, with his counterfeit. He is counterfeiting again. And where else do you have the association? There's another place where you have the association of hand and forehead together in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, the most famous verse for Jewish people in the whole Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The Shema, as they call it, the famous creed, confession of faith of Israel. Everyone knows it. Most people, most Jewish people still say it when their sons are born. It's said many times a day, but this was it. It was such an important text. Jesus uses this when he sums up the most important commandment. He adds the second part of it. I'll read that to you in a moment. Most people don't read a little bit further, though, into verses 6 and 7 of Deuteronomy. Let me read it to you. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. Talk of them when you sit in your house. Walk by the way when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You see, this is where this is a whole concept that's going on here. Just as the Lord commanded that this ultimate declaration of who he is, the Lord your God is one, should be done in accordance and obedience to following his word as a commitment to following him. You have this on your hand and you have this on your forehead. Satan now wants his followers to have a mark in the same place to show that they will now be obedient to his word, his kingdom, his government, his rules at this time. And those who willingly take it are doing the same just in the reverse of what the Israelites would do here. That's the whole point of the mark of the beast. That's what I believe is going on. That's the theological significance here. So you see, for me, so much of the debate that we have about different chips and different things like this, whilst they're interesting in many different ways, they're missing the point. Right? They're not focusing the conversation from where it needs to begin. We can talk about technologies later. In fact, we'll, we'll do that in the next verse, which is more economic-focused. But that, understand the mark of the beast in light of that. He is counterfeiting the point about those who willingly are obedient to the word of God or those now who are willingly obedient to the, mark, the word of the beast at this time. That's what's going on, I believe, here. Let's look at verse 17. We'll finish up. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And now we see the true totalitarian nature of his rule. If we sum up this chapter, he has global control of the world economic system. And with that really comes control of everything else, if you think about it. Money rules the world in this respect. In, in Whoever controls the system, the social world, controls everything. This is where people get the idea of a cashless society. You've probably heard that if you study much prophecy. Cashless society obviously allows for that sort of control. You can track every single transaction. We'll talk about that a little more another time. Now, notice throughout this chapter... We've seen that this man now not only has political control, which means he also has military control. He's won the wars and he's taken over. He now has economic control and he now has social control. He also now has religious control. 
This is the true meaning of a global government ruled by this person for this final era of history. This is the beast's kingdom. This is what he's trying to get. His utopia, as he's called it, where he is number one. Right back to Isaiah 14, I will become like God. That's his wish here. His aspirations are very shortly to be short-lived, as we know from the rest of the book of Revelation. But that is what his heart is desiring here. Now, we may see many things that we can use, like I've shown you some historically, that prefigure these things today. One thing you'll notice is that all of man's utopias always end up with this sort of control of population. Many places in the world we can point to today. Now, I'm not going to go into this anymore because... The next study that we do in Revelation will be a standalone study where I want to talk to you about globalism, the Great Reset, the Book of Revelation, economics, and all these things. I'm going to put them all together for you to show you how these things are playing out in our world so that we can understand it. So let's just deal with this final verse and then we'll finish. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man and his number is 666. I don't, probably don't need no introduction. 666 is a very famous number. Everyone's known it. It's glorified in all the movies. People have been calculating who the Antichrist is since the first century using the number 666. One of the first contenders was Nero. What is going on here? It's, it's probably a bit unusual to us, but this is something called gematria. So in Hebrew and also Greek, the alphabet, they don't have different numbers and letters. They have letters that also signify numbers. So it was very common, actually, in certain writings to refer to certain people by their gematria, by their added-up number of the letters. It was, sounds odd to us. It was actually quite common to do. So that probably is what is going on here. But you have to be <laughs> understand, it's not telling us to search for every evil man, see if his name adds up to 666, because there are so many names that add up to 666. Literally, you can almost make this lock fit any key if you want to, depending on all the different things. So I don't believe that's really what it's saying here. It's again for identification. Sorry, it's not for primary identification. It's for confirmation. I believe it is for this period of history, for these people who are witnessing these things happen. This one person rise to power, come to rule, he has the false prophets, the sign, the wonders, the temple, the image, all these other things that you can use for identification. This is only but the final confirmation for those who make the decision flee rather than take the mark. Like, so, so therefore, I, I don't think the command is for the church to be trying to search out these sorts of things. In fact, the church has made themselves look quite ridiculous. Thousands upon thousands of people have been offered. Every different era, generation of history puts their evil man on the throne and they make a mistake and they're all wrong. They've all been wrong. Therefore, that tells me it's not the correct interpretation. This will become clear, I believe, in the days of the tribulation, probably, most likely, for those people. We have many different things that we can use to study the beast in Scripture, his titles, his, his role, his activities. But quite exactly how this number plays into it, we're not really entirely sure. It'll be one of those things that probably become clear as we move forward. We don't need to fear the numbers superstitiously as Christians, particularly if, if we're born again believers in that respect. We do not really need to fear the beast or the false prophet or any of these things that we're studying. If your name is in the Lamb's book of life, then this is not really concern you in that respect. Your citizenship, your kingdom is already secure. You can't be tricked or deceived into these things anymore. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true son, 
the one who will have a true kingdom, the one who offers true salvation, the one whose spirit, the Holy Spirit, has sealed us eternally for his kingdom. We have that citizenship. And he is the one who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has to subject all things, even the dragon and the beasts, to himself. And we'll see him do that very shortly. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.